What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Today's guest is an ingenious hospitality thought leader. He's a hospitality champion as well. He's a lifestyle hotel advisor and entrepreneur. Currently, he's a principal at Fishtown Collective and HN Capital Partners. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Selman. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you so much. I'm, How did I'm, you like the intro? I'm, I'm blushing. I, I'm not good with compliments. So, uh, and apparently, I'm not good with age. I, I like to think I'm a, a lot younger than, than what your uh, intro would suggest. But I, I realize I'm no longer the youngest person in the room. So, Yeah, you know, I've been finding that out more and more. It's funny you say that. It's been happening with greater and greater frequency. I make these pop culture references in meetings or whatever that I'm sure everyone knows, like something from Ferris Bueller's Day Off or Star Wars, or, you know, it's just part of that, like, collective unconscious or consciousness. And I just say it. And then the the kids look at me like the blank stare. I'm like, oh, my God, you have no reference. So it's a sign that I'm aging well. <laughs> I, I, I like to believe we all are. Yeah, we're like fine wines. I mean, this, uh, this industry does keep us young. I think it also tends to be a pitfall for a lot of rebellion. Um, oh, as well. Actually, that is an amazing entry point. This industry keeps us well or keeps us young. So in my conversations with you and kind of seeing your career arc and journey, um, there is a certain element of youthfulness that I think I really appreciate being in here. And I, I guess like we can just start off the bat with that. Like the industry keeps us, keeps everyone involved in it young, young, young mind fresh, new, always into the zeitgeist, but like, what is it that you love most about hospitality? I, I, what I love most about the type of hospitality that, that, that I do is that we're, we're touching all of the human needs, um, you know, for the period of time that the guest is with us. And that includes both waking hours as well as sleeping hours. Um, as, as the, as the hotel, as the hotel, we are impacting, you know, sight and sound and smell and taste and touch. And we really have the opportunity to, to provide a holistic experience in a way that, you know, just dining doesn't or a more limited service hotel wouldn't, you know, our, our goal is to offer a robust experience. So. In thinking about that robust experience, I mean, the track record that you have and the brands that you've been a part of creating, like I think in the lifestyle, independent boutique space, however you parse those out, I think you, those initiatives, I think really changed the direct, uh, the trajectory of what those three nebulous parts of hospitality are. So when you think about those senses of the sight, sound, taste, and touch. I know you have to a, a, account for all of them, but how, like, what is there one sense in particular that, that you found the most meaningful in 
creating the nomads or the lines or or everything that you're up to now down in Fishtown, like is there one of those you try and you you hit you weight more heavily? I think it really depends on on the on the experience that we're trying to 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 create. Those are not goals in themselves. They are tools that we can use or they're a filter by which we make decisions so that we can ultimately produce emotion. And so the goal is emotion. So you know, if 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 we're if we want somebody to feel at at home, you know, we may think about something in a way and and amp up a you know a taste or amp up a touch in a way that's different than if we want somebody to be thinking about you know fun and an evening experience. In which case, maybe we amp up the sound a little bit. You know, a lot of what home is about is quiet and calm. A lot about what going out is about is about you know, kind of energy and noise. You know, when we step out of our our homes, we're we're engulfed in sound that we we don't otherwise experience when we close the door. And so, I think it really ends up being like, what what, what is the goal from an emotional standpoint, from an experience standpoint? And that and those are levers, like those sensors are levers that we can adjust to kind of produce different emotions and different experiences. So it's interesting in that. Many of the conversations that I have on defining hospitality, you know, it has to do, especially on the, the built environment and creating a built environment. It's okay. What is a thesis? What are you trying to accomplish? And a lot of it is how you make others feel right. That's coming up a lot, but I love almost, I think what's unique about what you're saying now is that to come at it with what emotion you want to evoke as the thesis and then building into it of like, okay, so what kind of hospitality? Because hospitality is multifaceted. It applies to everything. Um, but I love how you're setting it up about like, what's the emotion that you want to evoke? So as we look to your, to like on your career journey, where you came from, one of the things I'm most impressed with by the projects that you've worked on is you've kind of helped reestablish neighborhoods. And I know that you've done that in Nomad, in some cases established, so reestablish or establish. So there's like the Nomad, which really it, it plopped down there and it created a whole new buzz in that kind of midsection of Manhattan. Down, you know, I think at the line in, in DC, the line in LA, um, it just kind of breathed new life into those areas. Um, and then I, you were telling me a little bit about Fishtown down in Philly. Um, how do you go about choosing and invigorating these these neighborhoods? But I'll, I will say it's not like in these properties, it's not like a spaceship has landed into some foreign area. I think that you've also done a really good job of like, for instance, engaging doormen at Nomad or down at Perla. That I forget his name. He was amazing. But it's like everyone's kind of like, well, Eddie, he's amazing. He was so cool. Yeah. But but that's not just a new initiative. I feel like there's been elements of that through all the hotels that you've done where it's like not just how you bring people in to work there, but also welcome people in kind of off the street to be like, hey, come check this out. Um, how do you go about selecting those those areas and like i don't know if you can give your whole secret recipe but like it's amazing the impact that those properties have had over those areas 
you know, it, it, it's tough. It feels very intuitive, you know, when, when it's happening. And then after the fact, it feels very obvious. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, I think there's a, there's a, a, a term of art in Yiddish called chutzpah, which sometimes is a bad thing and sometimes it's a good thing. But, you know, I, I think the idea of like having the chutzpah um, to, to kind of enter this neighborhood, which feels kind of obvious, right? You, you take nomad uh, in the neighborhood is, is sort of a perfect example. You have amazing building stock. It, it, it was a, a designated historic district. It sits in between um, midtown Manhattan and downtown Manhattan. And, you know, I think most of our listeners probably understand the geographic dynamics of Manhattan. Everything is really close together, um, you know, in a way that other cities feel much more spread out in terms of density. Like it just in hindsight, it's just so obvious. You just have to sort of take the leap and say, look, if we if we if we take this step, the other things are going to follow. Um, and the Nomad District was really about the eighth, which also I was you know one of the developers on as well as the Nomad. And it was it was that culmination of those two that really kind of that was really the catalyst. It was, yeah. you know, we engaged with eight, it was a, a value price point, and then we stepped it up with Nomad. Um, but in hindsight, it's like, yeah, of course that that area is going to be ripe for, you know, for hospitality. Um, and then I, I think also, I, I, I neglected to bring up uh, the freehand as well, where, okay, so there's this kind of new, I don't want to put it in the micro hotel box but it's like that newer like smaller footprint smaller rooms for people mm -hmm. but i think in in many cases what i saw there in kind of a an outlying neighborhood right mm -hmm. not only did you attract a different demographic most of those more unique type properties or i don't want to say unique but just that kind of model you guys really turned up the volume on F and B in that area. And I actually, and maybe that's what it is uh, in, in, in many ways that all those properties, like there's some pretty incredible F and B where it's like, you don't want the hotel guests. You want everyone from outside to come in. Yeah. And, and I think that's, uh, we, we didn't originate the idea of F and B. I think we just heavily invested in it and really invested in partnership over, over doing it ourselves. I mean, Ian and Andre were, were, you know, great pioneers of the importance of F&B to the, you know, the holistic uh, experience. They tended, you know, Ian had some, had some liquor license issues he had to address, but they tended to be, you know, highly in control of those, of those experiences, either directly or through, you know, or through intermediaries. Whereas I think we were much more embracing of, a partnership, but the idea was there. You know, the the rooms are about people from from out of the city, and the F and B was about a place where travelers and locals could come together. In places like New York and L.A. and Miami, the bar to to attract locals is very high, and yeah. so you need to really invest it. You really need to commit to it. Um, I, I want to come back to freehand because I think the freehand idea um, was rooted in something uh, different than the than the than the micro room, um, and I think the micro the smaller rooms, especially in New York, because of the ability to uh, rent you know rooms by the bed versus by the room, 
um, were impacted by local regulation. But you, one of the things that we recognized in working with the standard and working with the aid was that, you know, the, the people that made those brands successful originally were ultimately priced out once those brands became successful and scale. And when you say the people that made them successful, the guests that would the guests. go give the money to these amazing, inventive and, um, I don't know, transcendent properties, right? Yeah. You know, like take the, you know, the original Ace in Seattle was, you know, 20 up five odd rooms. There were shared bathrooms. Like it was an amazing yeah. experience. And it was at a price point that basically anybody could afford. Um, what happens when Ace comes to, to New York? And all of a sudden, uh, you know, all the bathrooms are on suite and the room sizes are larger and there's a real investment in, uh, in the public spaces, the people and, and the ADR, the price point starts to climb. And so those really interesting creative people that were able to kind of stay and engage and, and create the energy of the place are no longer able to afford to really visit there or visit there as frequently. And so we were thinking sort of fundamentally, like, how do you continue to be accessible to this sort of broad audience, and especially the younger, more creative people that are pioneering? And so our response to that was like, look, let's create a product that no matter how much compression, how much business imperative will still be relatively affordable. And mm. so that was really the idea behind freehand was let's create a mechanism for allowing the, the, this experience to remain acceptable to young creative people. And just from living nearby, I just remember it was a, it was a, I think when a hotel, like a, when one of those independent boutique lifestyle, I don't even know what the hell you call them anymore. Like uh, I don't whatever know. that yeah. thing. Those cool hotels, right? When they be, you can, I think, you, yeah. When when uh, I feel like they've kind of they've arrived when you when you're in your neighbor when you're nearby and people are like, oh, I'm going to the freehand. I'm and you just hear that. It's kind of like when you're in Chicago on a nice day and people are like, everyone starts talking about, are you going to Wrigley tonight to watch a Cubs game? It's like it's like a thing. It's not like I don't even think they're going to the game to watch the game. They're going to this place to socialize and have fun. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I love the I love the Wrigley example. I mean, I think that is like quite literally the aspiration. Um, but when when the when when the hotel when the experience becomes part of the local zeitgeist. Um, that's when you know you, you've sort of accomplished it. Yeah. Um, wh it, whatever that is. And it, and so, quite honestly, it becomes harder. The more luxury that gets introduced, the harder that is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think it really informed our approach to Nomad. And, you know, it is now informing my approach to, to, to Perla, uh, you know, the, the new brand we launched in, in downtown LA. So when I saw you at Perla, there was this idea that some I, uh, the general manager I can't remember his name right now Adam Adam he was yep. talking about I, was it smart luxury or was some kind of luxury that was like a really cool 
mm-hmm. new concept or repackaged concept about what luxury is. So can you walk us through? I, I hope I didn't get it wrong. And can you walk us through what he was talking about? Yeah, I don't think we're I don't think we're there where we sort of like named it. But it, it, it's the idea that we let the guests choose, um, choose, you know, their engagement. Mm-hmm. And so it's a luxury that is based on guest empowerment. You know, if, if somebody wants to have a long engagement with uh, a staff member, we can, we, we will offer that. If, if, if you have a business traveler that's moving quickly through a space and, you know, they're much more focused on, on convenience and paying for convenience and their view of luxury is like convenience, then we can offer that. And it's a, and it's a real departure from the more traditional, um, the tr- more traditional standards of luxury where, you know, the brand defines what luxury means to that brand. And then the, then the delivery of service is done in a very kind of formulaic way. What we focus much more on is an ability to kind of read the guest mm. and understand, you know, it's, it's always delivered with a smile. Um, and, you know, that's really important where we are definitively about inclusivity, not exclusivity. You know, there's, there's no, there's no aspect of that, that we, that we really kind of aspire to. Mm. Um, but it is about empowering the guests to communicate with us either directly or through signals. Um, you know, what, what, what they need out of the experience. And you know, look, sometimes they don't know. And, you know, our, our, our team is really, you know, trained to, to deliver a great experience if, if we're not getting those signals, but it's really being aware and open to, you know, this is actually what the guests want. And so let's, let's give the guests what they want. Um, and, and so like that, that's kind of how we view it. And I think that makes it much more like that's the lifestyle part of lifestyle luxury, because it's not our lifestyle, it's their lifestyle. Um, and I think, you know, luxury in the traditional sense is, is about, you know, a very kind of rigid service model and, you know, people that like that, like four seasons, like four seasons for that model and people that like Rich Carlton like it for that model. And I have no fundamental criticism of it. Like they, they are, you know, they are, those can be wonderful experiences. Um, but I think what our focus is, is really empowering the guests to communicate what like they want. And then, so, so many of the conversations I've had here, one of the frustrations within hospitality is, I know that you said this formulaic application of luxury, but there seems to be so many disparate systems within hospitality from, you know, the, the PMS to the CRM, to the revenue, like whatever, how do you, how do you properly engage with a guest to determine what it is that they want and remember it without being like intrusive? Um, so I worked with a really wonderful hotelier GM um, named Meredith Morgan. Um, she was our original general manager at Nomad. And, um, you know, the, the lesson that she taught me, and it was a really important lesson, is that, you know, you, in hospitality, you're, you're kind of hiring for the, the, the person, not, the, not their experience. Like you, you can teach 
anybody how to use the PMS. You can teach anybody how to use the CRM. You know, the, the real, the real art of hospitality is to actually the engagement. And so, you know, that process starts at hire. I think part of the reason why, you know, Perla's TripAdvisor scores have risen so rapidly. And when I say rapidly, like they've risen in an unprecedented way in my experience. And I, you know, I think Perla was my 22nd hotel opening, something like that, um, is because I think we just did a really good job of hiring, you know, front desk people and managers that were really kind of tuned into the idea of, you know, let's really understand what the guests want from an emotional sense and let's try and engage with them. And so, yes, we, you know, they, they're all, I hope, I hope they're all very pro pro proficient at, you know, pushing the buttons and, you know, booking the thing and checking people in, but that's not really their function. You know, all of that can be so automated at this point. Um, it's actually about, you know, shaping the experience and, and understanding the guest. I think a lot, I love on the hiring part because it, it actually, that means you have a strong culture because you're attracting and deciding on people by who, what your culture is. Right. And it's like with Danny Meyer and his hospitality quotient, which, you know, there's ways to find that in who you attract and who you hire and who you retain. Um, and I guess like to tie it back, it's interesting that you were saying like the, who you hire in doing custom furniture, we have like a real strict process on how we get everything figured out and approved, but that process can be annoying to some people sometimes. So when we kick off a project, it's, we just ask like, Hey, we're going to send our weekly updates on this day, or can we do this? And it's like asking those first couple of questions, you get a real great idea of like, oh, don't send them on Friday, send them on Tuesday. I prefer to be spoken to or emailed or texted. We get to figure out in that first question about what they want. I'm sure it's very similar um, in the hotel operation side. It's exactly, it's exactly the same. And thankfully the technology is sort of catching up to it. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it used to be very challenging um, the pitfalls of texting with a guest. Mm -hmm. We now have software that makes it very easy if a guest elects to want uh, elects to be communicated through text, we can easily do it. Something we discovered in in uh, at Freehand was a lot of overseas guests communicated us through Facebook. No American guest would ever communicate with us through Facebook. For some reason, European guests felt really comfortable, and that was the form of engagement post booking on how they would engage with us. So we just had our our guest service person start checking Facebook regularly. And, and so, you know, it's just about listening more than anything yeah. else. Um, and I, look, it's been a long time, if ever, that I've ever hired personally a front desk agent. I've hired lots of GM and senior executives, uh, you know, at the hotel level, but within, you know, the operating businesses, I've hired lots of people. And I focus some on the experience. I focus a lot on what people's interests are um, because, you know, I think it says a lot more about, you know, how, how good a, you know, how good a champion for, of lifestyle hotels they will be. You know, mm -hmm. if, if people tell me they're not interested in food, they don't spend their time dining and they don't spend their time traveling or they don't love architecture, 
I, I'm like, well, you know, why do you want to come work for a hotel company? You can go, you know, you're building a building, you'll build anybody's building. Chances are you'll get paid more to do that someplace else than you'll do with us. You know, so for me, it's really important. Like we're hiring a human, right? We're not hiring a skill set. We're hiring a human. And, and I, and our goal, and we, we don't, we don't know, we're not always successful with this, but our goal is that, you know, is that, that idea permeates the entire, the entire, you know, org chart. And so, you know, at Perla, you will notice when you walk down the hallway, our, our housekeeping team will, will, will smile and say hello. And, you know, quite honestly, that's something that the hotel team came, came to on their own. I, I, it was not a conversation that I had, but, you know, it was the profound difference that I came to understand between, you know, hotels and freehand, which we, you know, which we championed really as much more of a, a shared accommodation or a hostel, mm. you know, and the experience that I had in hostels um, was that, you know, when you walk down the hall in a hostel, everybody says hello to you. And if you walk down the hall in a hotel, if anybody says hotel to you, it says hello to you, you like look at them like, you know, do I have something on my face or, <laughs> you know, like, but so like, it's a, it's a, it's a profound cultural difference in the consumer. I've, we've now tried to introduce that in a very organic way to the hotel, right? It's, mm. Cause that's about hospitality. It's about, you know, being a welcoming, inclusive environment. And if, if a housekeeper thinks that their engagement with a guest is not important, that I get experience, we're missing something. Mm, I totally agree. Um, I heard you say lifestyle a couple of times and just drop it there with confidence. So I'm just going to call them lifestyle hotels. Thank you. Yeah. You know, Thank boutique, you. I've said boutique and then, you know, we, 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 we did a, this great partnership with MGM resort and that hotel was uh, 2,700 rooms and, and, you know, and then lifestyle just seemed like the, the right word i just tre- we stretched it with the line when we were creeping up to 400 keys but like when when we got to 2700 keys lifestyle felt like like the right well you know on the lifestyle thing i could also say like my dad traveled a lot he was a he, he was a, he sold cosmetic bags and stuff like that but mm-hmm. he um he would always stay at marriott courtyards he liked them because no matter where he was he always knew the iron would be where it would be the sink would be where it'd be like he just liked that it's not me but that's his lifestyle so in 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 some way you could say that courtyard is a lifestyle hotel because it caters to my dad who really liked having the iron in the same place everywhere he stayed look i mean i think that was ultimately uh um i think that was ultimately the appeal of of the brand for so long was you know in a in a in an opaque world they offered a lot of transparency into the experience. If you were in Istanbul, Las Vegas, New York, or Shanghai, that Marriott experience is going to be very consistent. I think what what the I think the rise of the lifestyle hotel corresponded corresponded with uh, with with the proliferation of information, i.e., the internet. You know, I now can know what the GM's name is of that fifty room hotel in 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 Costa Rica because the internet tells me what it is. And that's the level of detail that, you know, the typical guests just did have access to 25, 30 years ago. Um, So I think more than anything, that's really been why, you know, the lifestyle hotel business has has grown. And, 
you know, you see in the last cycle where all the, where all the, the acquisitions were, they were of the kind of traditional hotel companies buying lifestyle brands um, because, you know, because that's what guests want. Totally. They want both things, right? Like they want the reliability and that's what your father was talking about. Like, yeah. But they also want to, they also want to have the engagement with their, you know, the place. Hmm. I want to go back to the, the powerful idea that you had of like, it's your job as a hotelier to produce emotion, right? So that's your thesis. And it really depends on where you're going. I, many people don't know, but you come from a film background, right? I, I do. So, but I, I want to kind of tie it in because where, where film is like the ultimate storytelling, you're, you're kind of limited at a screen, right? But you're also trying to evoke emotion. If you could go back to your, you know, your Hollywood days, what, do, how did you, is there a thread that connects the emotion that you would learn how to like work towards in a, in a film production to what you're doing in hotels? Is there any kind of thread that you can do to, that took you from that original place to becoming a hotelier uh, that you've carried on with you? Yeah. And look, I don't want to overstate my experience in the film business. It was a very intense experience for a short while, a long period ago. I, I, I feel like I'm Will Hurd in the big chill. Um, uh, <laughs> but it was a profound experience for me. And look, I, I, I don't, it, it was less about, it was less about um, emotion for me and or the, the through, the through line is less about emotion. Um, and and more about like the the alchemy of of collaboration, um, and you know the the film business in the place that I was, and I I worked for a, a rather infamous gentleman named Scott Rudin, who uh, is notoriously tough and 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 ran into some problems, but I could also say, you know, while I was uh, while I was um, why while, while I experienced some of that. Uh, some of that toughness was a really powerful and positive experience for me. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the, the, the film business, um, at least then, uh, was really about collaboration. And there was a lot of left brain, right brain. And all of a sudden you had all these people coming together. You had technical people, you had marketing people, and you had creative people. And they were producing something that on their own, no single individual or function could do. And that's really the same in the lifestyle hotel space. It's, it's, it's the idea of, you know, the team coming together and, you know, the, the, the people that get known for being hoteliers. And I'm, you know, I'll reference the Ian's and the Andre's, you know, they're, they're more about being great producers or conductors than they are about being great artists. And so, you know, and, and, and that's not to disparage it. It's a, it's a much more powerful thing to be able to get the best out of other people and bring them together than, than, uh, than to be able to do it yourself. And I think when you lose sight of that, like that's when hoteliers start to fail, when they think it's about them and not about, you know, the team, you know, I, I think there is failure. Some of it has to do with ego, but a lot of it just has to do with the passing of time. And, you know, we started this by saying, like, you know, I'm no longer the youngest person in the room. If you, if you think that your taste at, at 45, in my case, 
are going to be entirely applicable to people at 25, I'd be fooling myself. So, you know, I think if you think of the hotelier as a, a conductor or a producer, it allows for you to remain relevant for a very long time versus if you view yourself as the tastemaker or the creator, because, mm. you know, you, you will evolve with age, but you're probably evolving in a way that is different than somebody that's 25. I was talking to someone a couple of chats ago and more on the CapEx side of like mm -hmm. doing the renovation or the new build. And th this term came out that was like conducting the symphony of insanity or something like that. <laughs> and, cat. Yeah. Wrangling cats. But I, I, what's resonated the, the most of me as you were talking about this is uh, you, you said the alchemy of collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really good entry point into the next part because of the 22 hotels that you've worked on in your career, post, post Hollywood, Jeremy, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you've had so many partners from um, capital partners to operating partners to vendor partners to consultant partners. Um, and then as you look at like what you, what you've learned there, even with MGM, like huge corporate partners, um, as you look at where you from where you've come to where you're going, what excites you most about the partnerships and the vision of where you're going from here forward? Thinking about that alchemy of collaboration, basically like what did you learn from all of your past partnerships to where you're going now? Um, I, you know, I, I, I wish it was something more tangible than, than just like an openness. I think, you know, the, the, the openness to new ideas is just so important. Um, and if I, if I think about uh, the, the unique successes that we've had, and, and a lot of them have to do with being pioneering, you know, it, it, it's really about an openness to, do, to new ideas. The idea that a hostel can be elevated is a new idea. You know, the, the freehand is the result of that idea. But if we weren't open to it, you know, if, if, if we didn't have, uh, you know, partners that believed in it um, and partners that were excited by it, and those partners were, you know, boring banks to, you know, really, uh, really interesting and aggressive financial partners um, and uh, as well as operating partners, it would never come to life. And so, you know, and the same thing holds for the net. You know, Soho House was in a was an amazing, amazing idea that had been rooted in the idea of a space where creatives can come together. I mean, that that is the idea. And Soho House has become this really amazing and powerful machine. Um, but it started from that idea. And so, you know, the net was like, will will people show up to this in the middle of of the city, you know, and all we heard is like the city is dead from, you know, Friday afternoon to, to Monday morning and every night by seven o'clock it's dead. And so like, why on earth would you open up, you know, 50,000 square feet of food and beverage space plus a membership club in, in, in the middle of the city. And we kind of looked around and we saw, you know, how successful Soho House was in shortage, which is, you know, less than a mile away. Um, and 
uh, and the influx of, you know, Bloomberg coming in and, and, and we said, okay, we should be open to this idea here. Mm. And if we were closed off to the idea, we we never would have even started. And so, you know, for right now, I'm thinking, I'm thinking a lot about, uh, about the future in terms of like, what idea should I be open to? You know, and, and I think COVID has presented so many interesting challenges and opportunities. I sound like a, like a, a business consultant. Um, but, you know, I think the, the challenge of the industry is really to understand, like, you know, which of these, which of these trends are, are more perpetual. I mean, definitionally a trend is not perpetual, but, but which of these trends are more long lasting and which of these trends are a very short-term reaction to a very intense, you know, a very intense moment in time. Um, and so like that, that's how, that's how I'm thinking about the future is, mm. you know, where, where are the opportunity, like what opportunity should I be listening to? So, you know, is it, is it building another urban hotel ground up in the middle of Manhattan? You know, for, for a lot of people that feel kind of revolutionary right now. Um, and I'm not dismissing it. You know, I'm spending a lot of time, you know, I, I, on one particular project thinking about like, who is the audience for this today? Um, and who will be the audience for this in the future? And is this, is this something that I, that, that we, the capital markets should be, should be listening to. Um, I think the, the kind of the drive to business, uh, is another question that's sort of sitting out there. If you look at where capital has flown, has flowed, you know, during COVID, it's been to both, uh, luxury and, and, and more value oriented products in drive to markets. You know, how sustainable is that? Um, and, and or how fleeting is that trend? And so, like that, that is really how I'm, I'm spending my time strategically. There's all the practical, you know, business of opening a new hotel, uh, you know, that, that we need to be thinking about in terms of Perla and some of our ex other existing assets in, in Dallas, but also, um, but, but the, the more kind of creative strategic side is just really asking that question, like, what should I be listening? right now like what, what ideas should i be open to should we be open to um and and actually as, as you're talking about what ideas that you should be open to um i think what i was struck by most when you and vipin were up being interviewed by daniel delomo in that and, at the and perla benefit vipin nambiar is my is my partner he's the founder and senior principal at hncp um a, a wonderful guy and you know is, is definitely the more sort of disciplined financial person of the two of us. So, uh, right. A real balance. between us. Right. But, but that's what it struck me the most about that conversation was you are bringing in so many of these ideas. And oftentimes I found like the financial partner could be, you know, very binary black and white, but it seemed to me, you guys spent so much time talking about both of you being open to ideas and having a really honest and, um, frank dialogue which i'm sure you would have with any partner but there was something about how you guys were talking to each other and talking to the audience that i felt like there was something a bit more open-hearted about it i don't know really how to um i don't know what the word is i just got it i just got a feeling that it's a very special partnership 
It, it, it is. And um, I spent some time reading a book by Michael Eisner that was about partnerships. And, you know, it, it really, it really affected me um, in terms of understanding the, the power of, of partnerships at that executive level. Um, you know, Michael Eisner is very uh, honest about, um, about his own success and, 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 and the influence that Frank Wells had on his success. And they were sort of set up initially to be competitors and they, and they ultimately ended up being wonderful partners. And so, look, I have, I have played the financial disciplinarian many times. Like my, my role on the Ned was much less creative and much more about, you know, providing guardrails and structure around what ended up being an incredibly complicated and expensive project. It was the exact opposite of my role at MGM, where I was supposed to be coming with the with the ideas and 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 you know the collaboration and the financial discipline was much more of a corporate function of of MGM. Um, but you know, I think I think having people with the ability to to traverse those two things, the Venn diagram between my skill set and Vivian's skill set is showed a tremendous amount of overlap. Mm. Um, so if, if not that we don't have the capability, it's just the sort of role that we play in the partnership. Um, and I think that's a really important distinction. You know, Vipin is an incredibly creative person in his own right. He's a trained architect. Um, but his role in our partnership is the one that's really focused on the capital structure and, and, and the discipline. And mine is the one that's much more focused on the creative collaboration and the product. It doesn't mean that we're not capable of doing the other that we don't find importance and value in the other function. You know, I would not be a, a, a good hotelier if I was not disciplined financially and Vipin would not be a great investor uh, in the types of products that he invests in both with me and without me if he wasn't incredibly creative and had amazing vision. So, you know, it, 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 it's about the roles we play, not the skills we have. Hmm. Um, and then how did you come across uh, Vipin? Like when did you guys meet? So we we met um, we met uh, we met met uh, in the in the month between my departure from uh, Sidell, uh at the end of of Q three twenty nineteen and uh, and COVID <laughs> and the start oh. of COVID. Um, and we were working with a bunch of other really wonderful partners. On a project in Dallas, um, we were both brought to the partnership by others, and just kind of gravitated towards each other. Um, and and unfortunately, when that when that deal uh, fell victim to COVID challenges, uh, he and I stayed in touch and continued to to look at opportunities together. Um, and after about a year or so of doing that, uh, decided to to kind of really strategically pursue things together. Um, and so that, that was the genesis. Um, it's a, you know, it is now a, a, a three-year relationship as time compresses in really remarkable ways, um, but, uh, but is relatively new in both of our careers. Um, Wonderful. But, you know, I think we both had, Vipin left, uh, you know, the, the Hunt Enterprises, um, in 2017, I left Citadel in 2019, and you know I think we both saw the value in 
in working with larger organizations, but also the importance in going out on your own of finding partners that you can really trust and have like a, a real emotional alignment with as well as sort of a financial alignment. So, mm. you know, Vipin and I ha- have that, which is wonderful. I love it. And then I, I, I definitely thank you for mentioning the uh, Michael Eisner book. Who was, who was the partner that he was set up originally to be competitors with? Uh, uh, his name was Frank Wells. Frank Wells. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the reason why I'm asking as we're talking about partnerships um, in 2019, I was having challenges with my, with my furniture company and a mm-hmm. phone call, my phone rang and it was this guy, Gary Berman from Berman Falk. And he's like, Hey Dan, um, I've been in your situation before. Can, you know, I'd love to talk to you about doing something different. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you're kidding me. That was amazing. And now, so thinking about, and I've never had partners until recently. And I guess we're entering our fourth year now, almost to the day. So it's 2019 to now. Um, but being able to find those one plus one equal three or five, where there's, it's like an accretive union. It's, I mean, that's it's really amazing. Collab- right. That's the alchemy of collaboration, right? Like that, that is in, in a nutshell amongst two people, but it could be amongst, you know, companies and teams. But that, that's what I'm talking about. You know, it's, you, you know, when you can add one plus one and get eight, you know, that's value created. So um, what's the biggest, uh, what's the, looking back metrics on that one plus one equals X, What's the largest, what's what projects that, or collaboration that you've worked on in your life, in your career, yielded the largest X? It, it's probably the net and the, the net in London. And I think, you know, the, 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 the value there is really hard to determine in a, in a COVID world. I, I can talk about the, the trending X as of, you know, Q1 2020, that was, that was the greatest, you know, we, we had, and, and it really involved, um, it really involved uh, um, participation and influence from every aspect. So, you know, we had a, we had a, uh, an, an investor in, in Ron Burkle who, you know, saw the potential in a partnership between two companies that he had, you know, invested in and, and really helped grow, meaning uh, Soho House and Fidel. Um, he saw, he had trust and faith that we would be able to create something that sort of broke the, you know, the understood constraints of, of the city. We had a ground landlord um, who was willing to make a substantial investment alongside Ron, um, in, in, in terms of a, a structure there that was really, uh, beneficial to getting the project off the ground. Um, and we had Sedell and Soho House who each had to play their part. You know, I think Soho House had to think about, you know, membership in a way that was different than, than their sort of historic creatives only. Um, and Sedell had to go into a new market and really believe that, you know, we could apply the the de- the development discipline and know how that we had in the states in this sort of foreign land and and you know and partner with somebody like Soho House who you know 
was known for creating really wonderful products, but sometimes having a bit of a rocky road getting there. And so, you know, it took a lot of faith and collaboration to get there. And, you know, I'm not at liberty to talk to specific values there, but, you know, the returns were monumental um, or they were trending in a monumental way. Infinity and beyond. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So I love that you, I'm going to just, I call it R&D, rip off and duplicate, but I'm going <laughs> to R&D the alchemy of collaboration um, for a lot of conversations, because I think especially in hospitality, as we think about that one plus one equals not two, it has to be three or greater. Like we, it's almost like we have to look at that as a filter for everything that we do. And I think it, it also just shows when you start going down that line of questioning, it's like, we all stand on the shoulders of those before us. Right. And we all, we're not in a vacuum. We all depend on everyone. And to really produce that emotion that the ultimate goal is, we just kind of have to go there. So if we take that alchemy of collaboration and look to the future, what's exciting you most about the future with respect to alchemy of collaboration in your worldview and what you got going on? Um, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I am taking the opportunity of not having a 3000 person company, which is what you know, Sidel became, um, to focus in on some smaller projects. Um, and that's been a really kind of rewarding experience. We, we, we quickly grew, uh, at Sidel to a place where, um, where, you know, we, we couldn't really look at, at, at hundred room hotels, even if the economics worked and, we won't go into the challenges of operating at that scale. Um, uh, the, the, the size itself became a real challenge when we had a, you know, 25 to 30 person development team, all, uh, all really talented and, and compensated accordingly. Um, and you really just kind of a wonderful, wonderful leadership team, uh, at, at the Dell, uh, you know, and I'd be remiss in not mentioning Andrew Zobler, who was the CEO, you know, was the founder. Um, and, and it became very challenging as for us to do these sort of smaller, uh, personal projects. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, Vipin and I have set ourselves up in a way that we can, that we can do some of these smaller projects if they make sense financially. Um, and so, uh, we are, we are working on some, you know, much smaller, you know, 70,000 square foot and lower projects, um, which, you know, which when we're not thinking about quote unquote, feeding the machine, we can, we can do. Um, mm. and so, you know, we, we, we're thinking about scalability. So like, for me, that's what I'm personally most excited about. Um, I think from an industry standpoint, I think what I'm most excited about is really understanding the balance between technology and service. I think it's going to be the greatest challenge that the industry faces going forward um, from a hospitality standpoint. There's going to be other financial pressures, um, which are going to heavily influence that conversation. Um, yeah. But I think that's that's the challenge that I'm that that is going to face the industry. Like, how, how do we balance those things? 
um, mm. because we definitely have some competitors flanking us. And I'm talking about, um, I'm talking about like the Saunders of the world, which are, you know, heavily technology reliant, um, but not particularly human touch uh, reliant. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the hospitality industry can combat that. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, combat makes it sound aggressive. I, I, I'm not speaking about it in an aggressive way, but, but there's a counterpoint or, a, or an experience that can be derived through producing or, or enabling more kind of human contact. And so how do we balance those things to continue to allow hotels to be feasible, continue to pay a strong living wage to the, to the people that deliver that service, um, but also not having hotel rooms that have to cost you know, three times as much as they did five years ago. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. As you talked about the, um, the growth and scale that, um, that Sedell achieved, and then you think about the leadership team that's there, it's always difficult to get over certain hurdles for any business, right? Like you're a founder, then you're, you know, on this growth path, you're scaling, like what happens then? What happens? And I don't really want to talk about this, but I was just having a conversation with someone the other day thinking about with the rise of Amazon, how incredible Jeff Bezos has been as a, as a CEO, love or hate Amazon. Um, he, he's not the CEO as of recently, but he went yeah. from being the dude driving around in his beat up Toyota Camry all the way to, you know, within the past year, I think he left his CEO seat. And it's insane to think that he did that. Like there's, I don't, I can't think of another company that had the same CEO through that whole. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is another one. I mean, they, there, there are examples now, but they're truly unicorns. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I think for, for most, most examples, and look, we're talking about software. So scalability, talking about technology. The scalability of technology is very different than the scalability of like consumer products and other things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Starbucks is a, probably a good example of having a you know a consistent CEO. Took a hiatus but came back. Apple yeah. is also similar. Um, I think you know when 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 and the role of the CEO is something that I I think a a lot about um, and and quite honestly advise CEOs today about. Um, and look, ultimately, the, the, the role of an entrepreneurial CEO is to do everything. And the role of a, of a stabilized company CEO is to, is to set strategy and maintain focus and, uh, and think about capital. Like, you know, whether that capital is from the private markets or the public markets, those are the two basic functions of a CEO in a in a kind of an established business. but I would also say there's a third one too it's like really always breathing life into the culture of the of the company right I feel like that's often I hear what you're saying but I also feel like to to keep going and keep that special glue or that special sauce Absolutely. that kind of binds everyone there's got to be like a culture cheerleader or and maybe that goes into the strategy component but I I feel like that is overarching everything um yeah I I think of that as as strategy as part of mm. the strategy and focus, but it's absolutely critical, you know, and, uh, and I think is in some respects is the greatest challenge of, of companies 
whether they're big or small, is understanding what their culture is, defining it in some way that allows you to communicate it to your team is, is, a, is a huge challenge. And one that often is ignored um, because of resource scarcity for right. a long time. And I totally get it. You know, when you're, when you're in, a, in, a, in a resource scarce environment, strategy becomes uh, a very, very narrow thing. Um, but, uh, but I completely agree with you. Uh, and it's also on the culture, it's not just identifying and disseminating it to the team. It's also the real key is getting that hiring because then you can bring in more people on the team within yeah. that umbrella of culture, but then they also become raving cultural advocates for whatever the mission is. And it's, it's really exciting. I know it's really hard, but it's, I think it, it, the key that I've seen is it just needs to become a part of the vernacular or the lexicon. Like it has to be not just a poster on a wall. It's gotta be lived and breathed and spoken about all the time. Absolutely. Like I think culture is, Culture is something that needs to be openly spoken about and talked. And, mm-hmm. um, and, it, and I sort of harken back to uh, the comment I made about like my own hiring practices. That's why I'm always asking, like, what interests you outside of work? You know, mm-hmm. like you're going to be, a lot is going to be asked of you within these four walls of work. So, you know, you need to be passionate about what you're doing here. And, uh, and you need to start to think about it a little bit less like work and more about <laughs> lifestyle. Um, you know, boom, <laughs> boom about <laughs> your lifestyle. So like, what do you want? Like, how, how do you spend your time when you're mm. not here? Because I want that to influence how you spend your time while you're here. If you're really passionate about music and art, I want to understand in the development process, like, how are you influencing, how, how is the product being influenced by this passion of yours? Because I'm going to, I'm going to let you exercise that passion in the process. Um, or we could call that passion, you want to enable others chutzpah to bring it back full circle, yeah. right? So that then they can produce the emotion. And yeah. I guess, and I guess maybe I'm walking away like from this conversation with you, just thinking about it's like, I think that's a really powerful concept. I know I was doing it kind of tongue in cheek there, but enabling and empowering those to bring out their own emotion, to bring out the best emotions of others, like that is really what the secret sauce of hospitality or really anything is. And that's why I think hospitality is applicable to absolutely everything. Yeah. So well, we're seeing it, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a whole different conversation in the confluence of, of lifestyle hospitality and everything else. Mm. But, um, but I, but I think you're hundred percent right. I mean, it's not, it's not limited to hospitality. Totally. You know, you don't want somebody that's working for you. That's not passionate about furniture design. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, if, if, if they go home at night and they burn furniture, like <laughs> that's probably like <laughs> And an extreme example, <laughs> they, they probably should not be working for you. Totally. Um, you know, but if somebody likes to go out and eat a lot and, you know, they experience lots of different restaurants, like think about how powerful their point of view on, on the quality of eating will be. Yeah. And, you know, I know it's something I learned a lot from, from Nick Jones about. It's just like, 
what is the nature of the seat? Like, how does it feel when you're sitting here and eating? And the amount of prototyping we did for seating at the Ned was intense. And sometimes I thought ridiculous, but I think the end result was like, people really enjoyed sitting in our seat. And, yeah. you know, and that, and that meant they were buying more and drinking more. And so that was, that was, you know, that was a powerful lesson. Did you happen to check out Soho Farmhouse while, while you were out there? Yes, I, I, oh, I, oh. I have visited. It's amazing. It's it, so it is, cool. It is really amazing. Um, well, Jeremy, I know that we could keep talking for hours, but I want to just um, be mindful of your time and and just express my extreme gratitude for your time. Like if people wanted to learn more about what you're up to, uh, what's what's going on, what's the best way for them to, to get in touch with you? Um, for right now, the best way is through LinkedIn. Um, it's just my name, Jeremy Selman. Uh, Great. You can, you can find me there. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes as well. Um, yeah. But I really appreciate this conversation so much for the ideas of collaboration and producing emotion. And thank you for helping me think a little bit differently about it. And like, this has been just wonderful. So thank you. This was amazing. Thank you so much. I really love this experience. Thank you. And then I also want to thank our listeners because again, it gets boring saying this, but I'm going to keep saying it because it's fucking awesome. We, our listenership grows every single week, which just tells me that we are not bound to the confines of the hospitality industry. I think that it's really resonating. These talks about hospitality, emotion, collaboration, the built environment, it's applicable to everything. So if this changed the way that you think about hospitality or just life, please pass it on to a friend. And thank you, everyone. We will catch up next time. 